My name is Hannah, and this is my church family, and I'm so glad to get to be here with you this morning and share in this series that we're going through on the book of Mark. I don't know if you caught the words in the song, Riches for the Needy Soul. Some of us came this morning feeling needy. Some of us have an ache in our heart. Some of us feel broken, maybe even desperate. If that's you this morning, I have really good news for you. Some of us don't have those feelings this morning. We don't feel all that broken, not that desperate, maybe kind of all set. If that's you, the good news doesn't apply to you. I would say that pretty much sums up Mark 2, paraphrased. Pastor Tom and Paul uh, spoke the last two Sundays and pointed out that Mark basically is answering two big questions, basic questions. One, who is Jesus? And two, what does it mean to follow him? Wow. If we get those two questions, that's pretty much it. So in chapter two, which we're going to cover this morning, we get to look at four different scenes where Jesus is encountering different people, and we catch a glimpse of who Jesus is. And in light of who he is, I get to see myself. So let's look at Mark 2 and scene 1, which is Jesus proves he is God. We're going to turn to page 708 in the Pew Bibles, or you can look it up in your phone. But I'd really encourage you to read along because we're actually we're just going to go through the whole chapter of Mark 2, but one section at a time. So we're going to read 2, 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? 
Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. So Jesus was back at Capernaum, which actually became his home base. He had already been there had already performed miracles there. People had already been healed there. So word had gotten out, Jesus is back. This is the time to come and see Jesus for healing. Jesus speaks with authority. We want to be there. And so he's actually in a home. And the home was not big enough for the crowds who wanted to come and be with Jesus and see Jesus. So this guy that it talks about here, a paralytic, a paralyzed man, wanted to get to Jesus. So he had his friends, four guys, carrying him to go see Jesus, and they get there, and oh no! They can't even like see him through the door. It was so crowded. What are we going to do? I guess we'll have to catch him next time. No. They were desperate. And so back in that day, or where Jesus was, the, the roofs were flat. And so it was actually possible, and sometimes there were actually stairs up to, to the roof of the house. And the way they had made them back then was these beams that would go across with like spaces in between, and that would be filled in with with clay, straw, and it would harden and it would, that would become the roof. So they had to dig through and then they would lower Jesus down. So it wasn't an impossible task, but it wasn't like easy access for sure. So a lot of work went into it. And here he is before Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven. So in verse 7 it says, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God himself? Blasphemy. Blasphemy was actually, people were stoned for blaspheming and for claiming to be God. What is he doing? I can just imagine Jesus' mother being a little, like, uncomfortable because, like, why did you have to say that, Jesus? Because you knew that would ruffle feathers. 
You knew people weren't up for hearing that. You could have just forgiven his sins. You wouldn't have to say it out loud. They're going to hate you now, and you just got started. Scott and I were in Minnesota a month ago. And I don't know if any of you are from Minnesota, but there's something called Minnesota Nice. You know that? Minnesota Nice is you don't ruffle feathers. Minnesota Nice is saying what you ought to say so that people can feel good about themselves. It doesn't have to be completely truthful, but it makes them feel good. Jesus was not Minnesota nice. He knew what was in their hearts, but he unapologetically demonstrated who he was. The Son of God. God himself. In verse 10, it says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that I am the God, the one who can forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and walk. Wow. Some things that I notice in this section is the level of desperation. They went to quite a bit of trouble to bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. And I really don't think the paralyzed man had actually said that morning, Jesus is in town, so I want to go worship him. Jesus is in town. I want to get healed. He was desperate. And when the obstacles came and he couldn't get there, they found a way because they were that desperate. And I don't think they thought, hmm, maybe if we get to Jesus, he might be able to do something for me. No. We have heard that he has authority, and I know that if I get to Jesus, he can heal me. That's faith. And he got much more than healing. His sins were forgiven. If I picture myself in this story, I wonder, how desperate am I? Would I really want to make a scene? Would I get there and kind of go, well, maybe not today? Or would I actually rather be the bringer the helper than the desperate one myself? Would I maybe actually rather watch some more, someone more desperate get healed? Or get help? It makes me wonder, what could I be missing?
How desperate am I? Let's look at the second scene, the calling of Levi. Jesus came for sinners. Verse 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Levi was actually Matthew, and Matthew, the one who wrote the first book in the New Testament. Levi was probably his given name, and Matthew, his apostolic name. He was a tax collector. Actually, at this encounter was not a reformed tax collector. He was sitting at his tax collector's booth when Jesus called him. The tax collectors, or, or yeah, the tax collectors were working under Herod Antipas, working to collect taxes for the Romans. This was not popular. Tax collectors were not popular for good reason. They were hated. Because not only did they collect the taxes that people were supposed to pay, they cheated people. They, they overcharged. And they were often rich and often oppressing the poor. They were greedy. And the teachers of the law had a big issue with this. Jesus is calling him, the greedy one, the oppressor. He's calling him and he's going to his house. Does he not realize who that is? It's scandalous. And they say, when they saw it, in verse 16... They saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then on hearing that, Jesus says to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. I always felt like the Pharisees were the bad guys, right? They were the arrogant, they were mean, they clearly didn't get what Jesus was about. And what I always imagined was that Jesus came and he hung out with the poor, the hungry, the widows, 
and the orphans. And I kind of put myself in that category. Those are the people I like. Those are the people I want to help, or at least I say I want to help. I get that. Those are the good guys, the ones who want to help them. But I never thought that much about Jesus calling the greedy, the powerful, the oppressors, the ones taking advantage of the poor. He went to that guy's house. I kind of don't blame the Pharisees for having an issue with that. But Jesus turns to them when they had an issue with that and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. So the point isn't really for me to go, okay, so you for sure want me to love the poor, the hungry, the orphans, the widows, and... So if I don't want to be like the Pharisees, I guess I have to like the greedy and the oppressors too? Well, maybe. But it's not the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is, I am those people. I am the greedy, the oppressor the cheater. And Jesus is saying to me, Hannah, it's not the good who need a doctor. And unless I understand and really get that I know it's me, that I'm the sick, that you're the sick, the needy, the messed up, the oppressor, I won't be able to receive what it is that he came to give. Because I won't need healing. I won't need forgiveness. I won't need freedom if I don't know I'm bound up. Let's look at scene three. Jesus, the new wine, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. 
So some people here are upset with Jesus' followers because they're clearly not doing what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to fast twice a week. The Pharisees were fasting twice a week, and they were being very good about it. The Mosaic Law only required once a year for a fast. But over time, they had worked this up where this had become a tradition and a ritual that really proved how religious you were. So now they looked at Jesus' followers and they're clearly not looking very religious or spiritual. They look like they're having a party when everyone else is being sorrowful and somber. They're not serious about their religious obligations. And then Jesus uses an example of the wedding and comparing his followers to the guests of the bridegroom. And for the Jews, the week of a wedding was party time. It was the one week where it was not required to fast. If you were a guest of the bridegroom, you got to have a good time, and you got to eat, and you got to party, and you got to full out enjoy. And Jesus is basically saying to them, I am the bridegroom. How frustrating it must have been for them to hear him say that. But Jesus was saying, the ones who follow me have all kinds of reason to celebrate right now. And there will be a time for them to fast. So I'm not a Pharisee in the truest sense of the word. I'm not a teacher of the law from back then. And I don't really have that much of an issue with people not fasting twice a week. That's okay with me. So I can't relate to that. But what I can relate to is the value I put on outward appearance an outward appearance of my own goodness. What will people think? Over time, I've set up little unwritten rules that kind of gauge spirituality. I didn't sit down and write a rule book, but it just kind of happens over time, and it's happened to you. One of them is busy, is good, and more spiritual than to relax. Like if I get a phone call in the middle of the day and I'm actually hanging out on the couch and somebody asks, what are you doing? Ah, uh, I should be busy. I should be doing something important. That's a little better than relaxing. 
Or when I grew up, my dad's mantra was everything in moderation, which basically mean don't be too excited, don't be too sad, everything kind of contained. And being frugal is definitely a sign of godliness. Don't be too extravagant. Has anybody ever stumbled over the fact that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine? I don't think I would have recommended that. <laughs> My spiritual gauge certainly wouldn't have. I don't have an issue with the wine. It's just that it just didn't seem very spiritual. So really nothing wrong with being frugal. But how I make it about my appearance of godliness that's what becomes an issue. That's what was the issue for the Pharisees. Their fasting had become an appearance of godliness. And this is what my gauges do. In 2000, Scott and I had just moved out of the discipleship home that we lived in for 10 years. And we were going to get to own our own home for the first time. And we were actually going to get to build a house. Now, building a house, that could look a little extravagant. But when I started looking at plants, I really found the perfect house because we wanted a lot of room. But this house was like, it looked like a small house, but it had a lot of living space in the basement. So it was kind of perfect because it looked inside of what was okay. So super excited about this house. And I remember driving down 135 from Westboro to Northboro, and they started framing our house. And they had flipped it around on the lot, which was on a hill. So the whole entire basement was now above ground. It was huge. And I was like, oh, what are people going to think? It's not that I wanted a smaller house. I wanted all the space, but I didn't want you to see it. Because that's not very spiritual. My focus was directed on how others would view me. The Pharisees' focus was directed at how others would view them, and that is actually not worship. Their fasting was not worship. My appearance-centered life can never be worship. Then Jesus, in 21 to 22, talks about patches and wineskins. In those days, they would use goat skins to hold the new wine. So they would pour new wine into goat skin, and as the wine would ferment, the goat skin would expand and would hold the wine. Now, if you poured out that wine that had fermented and wanted to pour new wine into that goat skin that had already expanded, what's going to happen? It's going to burst. 
It won't hold it. And what Jesus was saying to them is what I'm bringing you, what I'm saying to you, will never fit into your old containers. He was speaking to the Pharisees and he was speaking to me. Jesus is saying, I'm not adding to the old, I've come with the new. Jesus didn't come to make a few adjustments to my good life. And my attempt to get it all right really gets in the way. And I can be sure to be religious or good is an old wineskin. And what Jesus has intended to give me cannot be held inside my goodness. The new covenant is the new wine that sets us free. What does it set us free from? Regulations, traditions, but most of all, sets me free from myself. Jesus is the new wine who brings forgiveness and grace. Let's look at scene four. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. 25 through 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, what are they doing? Or what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiatar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So no one was allowed to work on the Sabbath. That was clear. And it was in the Ten Commandments. Everybody knew that. And here, the Pharisees are catching Jesus' disciples picking grain. Technically, they were harvesting. That's unlawful. Caught ya. And then Jesus points to the Old Testament, which they knew very well, that David, King David, actually ate some of the consecrated bread, which was only for the high priest to eat. Why did he eat it? Because he was hungry. <laughs> really? So why is Jesus saying that? 
he's saying that the point is that David and his disciples were within the spirit of the law. Not the letter of the law. Why? Because the Sabbath was actually made for them, not the Sabbath, not them for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift, not a regulation. It was a gift, not an obligation. It was given for spiritual, mental, and physical restoration. Growing up a long time ago, I guess it's clear, Sunday mornings were kind of uptight. Back in the day, this is not how the journey is now, but you had to wear for sure a dress if you were a girl. And it had to be ironed and pretty, and we all had to get ready and in the car, and everybody was a little bit crabby and uptight. And then you got to walk into church, and you got to be nice. The Sabbath, a gift for us. Did you ever get those mixed up? 15 years ago, our David was eight years old. And he came to me one day and he said, Mom, Sarah got her ears pierced when she was eight. Can I get mine pierced? This was 15 years ago in Northboro. And I'm telling you, at Lincoln Street School, there were no boys with earrings. So um, I said to David, well, it's probably going to be kind of hard for you if you're the only one, so maybe it's not that good of an idea. Well, Mom, I'll be okay if they tease me. Hmm, okay, so this is what we're going to try. We're actually going to start out, how about if we start out with one of those magnet earrings? Have you ever seen those? Maybe not, but they look exactly like an earring. So we got one of those, and just see how it goes. You can try it out. So David tries it out. Yeah, people did tease him, but he was okay with that. He liked it, yada, yada, yada. So Sunday morning comes around, and I'm standing in the bathroom, and I'm getting all ready for church. And David comes and stands in the doorway, and I look over at him, and I'm like, not to church. You are not wearing the earring to church. That's shameful. That doesn't belong in church. What will people think? In church, you got to do the right thing. I introduced shame into church. I introduced shame into going to worship 
God. I introduce shame into the gift that God has given for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you like or don't like. It is for you to come and celebrate what Jesus has for you. So I get things pretty mixed up. And I do a bad job at reflecting who Jesus is. But you know what? I started out by saying there is good news for those who are needy, for those who are broken, for those who are desperate. And there's also good news for those of us who recognize that we thought maybe we were the good ones. Not as needy, but after coming face to face with who Jesus is and who I am, we actually miss the point. We are also the sinners, the sick, the broken. And in the light of who Jesus is, Jesus is so other than me. And my only life-giving response is in the words of Isaiah after hearing the seraph singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I have unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. This morning we have caught a glimpse of who the king is, so other than me. Woe is me. But then one of the Sarahs flew to me with the live coal in his hands and which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's the amazing good news for us this morning. Come broken, desperate, needy. Jesus came for you.